Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a break from 1 Timothy and focus on the Lord's Supper. And I think it's going to be a very special day of worship as we consider and reflect on this gift that has been given to us by Jesus for the church. I want to take this opportunity to make sure that all of us understand what it is that we are doing whenever we gather around the Lord's table. To understand biblically, theologically, the foundations for this moment, what it is teaching us about God's redemptive actions throughout the course of history. And I also want us to be reminded about why it is a good thing for us to do collectively as the church, why it is given to the people of God and is beneficial for the people of God. Essentially, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of the gospel and, and the, the elements that make up the gospel, the, the saving work of Christ and the satisfying work of Christ. Every time we gather around the Lord's table, every time we consider the elements, we are being reminded of the saving activity of God through Christ on our behalf and the uniquely satisfying work of Christ to our souls. And it's important for us to not pass over this moment. You know, when I was growing up, we only did the Lord's Supper maybe once a quarter. And I remember being excited about the Lord's Supper. Usually it was on a Sunday night. But I also thought, because of the infrequency with which we did it, that maybe it wasn't as important as other things that we did. And I began to question over time why this ordinance given to us by Christ Himself was not more frequently practiced in the church, why it was not of a greater focus for the body of Christ, if indeed it signified, symbolized everything that I thought that it did. And as I've grown... And I've studied the Word of God, and now as the Lord has placed me in a position to help give leadership to a church, I am more and more convinced that the more often we can take part of this ordinance, the greater benefit it will be to our body. There's such power in the gift of the message of the Lord's Supper. And that's why I want us to be sure that we don't pass by this quickly. And every time that we do it, we do it once a month right now, every time we engage in the Lord's Supper, that we understand what it is that God is seeking to communicate to us through the partaking of this supper and why it is essential for us as a people to make this ordinance a priority for us. So, two sections this morning as we prepare our hearts to engage the Lord's Supper. The first is the biblical background for the supper. How did we, how did we get the moment when Jesus institutes this supper on our behalf, and what is he teaching us through the institution of this ordinance? And then secondly, why is it still of benefit for us today as God's people? So let's journey back to the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Because in the Exodus, the story of God's miraculously delivering his people from the bondage of Egypt and leading them to the promised land, throughout that story, we find the foundations for what will become the Lord's Supper. Exodus chapter 12. If you know the story to this point, the people of God have been in an Egyptian bondage for some time. What was once a place of refuge 
because of famine in the land has suddenly become a prison. And the Bible says a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph, who was one of the architects of salvation for Egypt and the world around as a famine hits this land. His people came into Egypt for protection, but now the Pharaoh sees them as slaves who can build his empire, who can build his kingdom, and his rule is harsh as he seeks to use them to build monuments to himself. And the people of God cry out. They don't even know really who they're crying out to. They just cry out. They're crying out for help. And in a miraculous display of covenant faithfulness, God hears their cries. He's not yet fully revealed himself to them, but he's about to. And he, he breaks in to the course of history to do something incredible, to deliver this formed people and bring them to the land of promise. Moses has confronted Pharaoh many times before chapter 12, asking him in the name of the Lord to release the people of God. And after time after time, Pharaoh resists the call of Moses and the claim of God upon this people. Even in the face of nine previous devastating plagues. But now the Lord promises a tenth. And this plague is even more severe because it concerns actual human life. The firstborn of every household in Egypt, even the firstborn of their livestock, will all die in a single night because of the judgment of God upon Egypt. But in the midst of that judgment, God makes provision for those who are faithful to Him. And this provision is outlined in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. Here's what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the, the first month of the year for you. That's how significant this moment is going to be in the life of Israel. Till all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its leg and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall burn. You shall burn. And this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you 
when I strike the land of Egypt. What an incredible provision that God has made for His people in the midst of certain judgment. A pure and spotless lamb to be sacrificed. The people would eat the flesh of this lamb and they would sit under its blood as a statement of trust in God. A trust that He would pass over them and spare them from the coming judgments. And God did just as He said. As He rained down judgment upon Egypt, the people of God who did as they were instructed were spared. And this is a formative moment in God's interaction with this new people, this people that He attached Himself to because of the promise that He made to Abraham. And God wanted to make sure that this people did not forget. They did not forget about how He heard their cries and acted miraculously to deliver them from a situation from which they could not deliver themselves. And so He institutes a festival. He institutes a feast of remembrance to make sure that in the aftermath of doing exactly what He promised He would do, that God's people would not forget. You see, God's very concerned with His people remembering His redemptive and saving acts. Because one of the chief responsibilities of God's people is to give Him glory for how He has acted on their behalf. So, in verses 14-20, to 20, God establishes this festival. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Not just for your generation. Not just for the immediate generation. But for all the generations that come. So they do not forget how they became a part of this people. And why it is that even now they're experiencing the blessing and the favor of God. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened, or nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. This is to be a powerful reminder of God's saving and redemptive, merciful actions on behalf of the people of Israel. And the people of God were obedient. As we see throughout the Old Testament, they celebrate this festival well. In fact, it became a central point of celebration in the nation of Israel. Because through this celebration, they were able to remember their preeminent place and the redemptive plan of God. The unique way that God loved them and that through them He would love the nations around them. It was a way for the people of God to celebrate God's initial saving work and His ongoing sustaining work. 
as we see throughout the Exodus event, because God didn't just deliver them, He sustained them, right? He brought them through the wilderness, giving them the food that they needed to eat. And eventually, He brought them to the land of promise. As we move into the New Testament, the Passover, this festival becomes central to understanding the work of Christ. Very often, as you may remember in our study of the book of John, the Passover becomes the backdrop for Jesus' teaching because He wants to build on the Passover to help us understand what it is that He's doing. He wants to tie back to the initial great action of redemption that God had performed in the Exodus event, the deliverance all the way to the land of promise. He wants to tie those things together to help the people who are listening understand exactly what it is that God is doing on their behalf in Christ. So for instance, in John chapter 6, verses 48 to 58, we see an instance where Jesus is feeding the 5,000 and it just happens to be during the Passover time. And that setting of the Passover provides an opportunity for Jesus to expand our understanding of the unique work that God is trying to do for us through Him. And so He says in John 6, 48-58, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That sounds really gross. So Jesus said to them, to make it even grosser, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. No life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not the bread like your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread of life will live forever. The elements, again, on display here. Blood. Flesh. Talking about not just the protection of God now, but the provision of God. And how in the same way that God provided for His people to sustain them on their way to the land of promise, He is now providing for them in a new and unique way through the work of Jesus as He shapes and fashions a new people to lead them to a new land of promise. The Gospel clearly at work here as the Passover provides the backdrop, reminding God's people of His protection of them, but also His provision for them. A declaration of the Gospel that Jesus alone saves and satisfies. It's incredible how Jesus weaves all of these Old Testament threads together to help us understand what it is that He is doing on our behalf. You see, you and I, like the people of God in Egyptian bondage, are in bondage. You and I are enslaved. And we're enslaved to a greater power than Egypt. We're enslaved to a greater threat than Pharaoh. And our future will be more dismal than spending an earthly life in slavery. You and I are captive to sin. We are in bondage to a sinful nature. 
We are serving the, the powers and principalities of this world, seeking to build their kingdom instead of the kingdom of God, which is why we were created. And every one of us in this room who has come to faith in Christ at some point and that struggle realized there was something wrong about this world. That it was not satisfying like it promised us it would. And that building kingdoms for this world was vanity. And we cried out. Not even really knowing who we were cried out to. We cried out for help and in desperation and in God's merciful action, He heard us and acted on our behalf. Sending a deliverer. Sending someone who could uniquely represent us as both God and man to rescue us from our captivity, from our bondage, miraculously so, leading us and sustaining us on this journey to the moment when He comes to call us home and to take us into that new land of promise. And Jesus takes all the redemptive imagery that is present in the story of the Exodus that is attached to the the practice of the Passover and he brings all of that to bear on the greater redemptive work, the greater saving work that God is doing through him. Was the moment of the Exodus miraculous, incredible? You bet it was. It was an incredible display of the glory of God and His covenant steadfast love for His people. But it is a lesser event than what's taking place with Jesus. It was always meant to point us to a greater action, a greater Lamb who would provide a covering for us. Greater bread that would sustain us. And that would not just give us life for a day, but life for eternity. In the supper, we are reminded both of the eternal and abundant life that Jesus has provided for us. His body must be broken as bread to provide the sustenance needed to gain eternal life. We must partake of Him as the Passover lamb to escape the judgment of God and gain access into His people so that we can inherit the land of promise. He is the the bread of life that satisfies the hunger of our soul. And also, every time we take the supper, we remember the Lamb of God that was slain. We sit under His blood as a testimony to the fact that Christ's sacrifice alone can shield us from the judgment of God that is to come. This Passover Lamb slain on our behalf uniquely saves and satisfies us. So now hear the words of Jesus in Luke 22, 14 to 20, as he establishes the Lord's Supper during the Passover Supper. And remember, this is not a coincidence. This is all a function of God's sovereign design to communicate to us how he has been working through history to save us. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him preparing to take over the, to partake of the feast. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Why? Because through the Passover, we see a physical, visible image of what it is that God's about to do for us in Jesus. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And I think all of us can see the depth of meaning in Christ's words because of how they are attached to redemptive themes that God has been unfolding throughout the Bible to lead to this moment to help us have an understanding of what it is that God is trying to do for us in Jesus. In the same way, a pure and spotless lamb saved the people of God then, so now the pure and spotless lamb will save us. In the same way, bread from heaven came to sustain the people of God on their journey toward the promised land, so now bread of heaven has come to sustain us in our journey toward the promised land. This is not just for show, what we do here whenever we take up the supper. It's not something we should just pass over. It's something that should sit on us. The weight of what God is teaching us in this moment. As we reflect upon thousands and thousands of years of faithful redemptive activity all pointing us to Jesus who alone can save. Let us not forget what the Bible teaches us through this ordinance. How it reminds us of the gospel and Christ's saving and satisfying work. What an incredible moment that we're about to partake of. And the Bible helps us understand it from a theological perspective. But why is it also important for us to continue to do this work as a people today? Why did Jesus give this to us? And why should we at First Baptist Church of Irving partake of this supper as often as possible? I want to offer just three benefits today. There are probably more. But three that I can explicitly see in us as a people, regularly and often, partaking of the supper together. Firstly, it helps us, the Lord's Supper, remember the saving action of God. In the same way that God's people needed provision in the Old Testament to remember, to not forget the saving, redemptive actions of God on their behalf, you and I need to be reminded of that today as well. And it is a shame that is so, but all of us know in our heart of hearts, it's true. The further we get away from that moment of deliverance, the further we walk away, or the further we, we live our lives past that moment when Jesus miraculously called us from death to life, the greater propensity we have to grow cold and indifferent to what it is that God has done for us. We need help remembering. Right? Because it is not a small thing what God has done for us. It is not a small thing. It is a miraculous work that God has done on our behalf. And we need to be reminded of that. We don't need to take it for granted. 
We don't need to get comfortable in our saved state because we could very easily turn back to the things that caused us to be separated from God in the first place. Listen, friends, may we never grow tired of being reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. May we never grow tired of remembering that even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our bondage, when we had no hope, when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, a merciful and gracious God heard our cries and did not turn a blind eye to our desperate state, but sent His Son to redeem us, to call us back out of bondage and deliver us as only He could. May we never forget the miraculous display of God's glory in the cross. You think those ten plagues were incredible? You think they were a display of the glory of God? Look at the cross, friends. There's never been a greater display of the full character and nature of God than the moment that Jesus hangs upon that cross. Yes, we see the full righteousness, justice, holiness of God as His wrath is poured out upon Jesus. But we also see in compelling ways His grace, His mercy, and His love. Because all that was for us. And how we as God's people who gather together weekly to worship Him could ever grow cold or indifferent to that is beyond me and yet is the reality. It is the reality. We need help remembering. We need help remembering how bad we were, how lost we were, how dead we were. We need help remembering where we were when Jesus found us. And we need help remembering how He saved us. It's a moment where we remember the saving action of God and what He has saved us from. He could have left us in Egypt, but He didn't. He could have left us in bondage, but He didn't. He could have let us suffer His judgment as everyone else, everyone else in Egypt did, but He didn't. He made a covering for us to rescue us and spare us from that wrath. Oh, praise be to God. This supper is a necessary reminder of how the gospel has saved us. Secondly, the supper helped us remember the truly satisfying nature of God. Not just the saving action, but the satisfaction of God. Remember, both of these are instrumental to understanding the work of the gospel. The supper is an opportunity for renewal and repentance. Renewal and repentance. As we question what it is that actually satisfies us, is it the bread of life? Are we dependent upon the Lord to satisfy our every need, trusting that only He can? Are we like the people of Israel as we walk through the wilderness, trusting daily on God's provision to sustain us on this journey? Or are we looking to other sources to feed us? Are we looking to other sources to, to satisfy our thirst? Knowing, as the Bible says, that all of those things will never satisfy, satisfy us the way that Jesus can. It's a moment to be renewed in our commitment to looking only to Christ to satisfy. 
only to Christ, trusting that he alone can meet our every need as he declared. You see, when you and I partake of this supper, when we eat of the flesh of Christ and we drink of the blood of Christ, we are making a corporate, de- corporate declaration for the deepest longings of our soul the longings put there by God to point us to Him can only be satisfied in Christ. And that He fills us in a way that no other person can, no other thing can. And the joy that we have found in Christ alone, we are turning back to God in an expression of worship. Here's the question though. Does our life reflect that testimony? If that's what's expected of us when we partake of this supper, that's the declaration we are trying to make. The question we have to ask ourselves every time we sit before the table of God is, does my life line up with what I am declaring in this moment? If it does, then it allows us to renew our commitment once again to not turning to wells that will cause us to thirst again, but to the one well that has the living water. If it doesn't, it's a moment of repentance for us to say, God, I'm about to declare something with this people that I don't really mean because I've been looking to to money, to men or women, to power, to pleasure, freedom. I've been looking to all those things to give me ultimate purpose in life. I've been looking to all those things to place my my trust and my hope in. I don't really take comfort in you. I take comfort in food. I take comfort on my couch in laziness and apathy. I'm not taking comfort in you. And so I need to repent of that today. Because I don't want to take this supper in an unworthy way. I want people to look at me and see in this common expression of satisfaction in you that my life reflects my testimony in this moment. And so I repent. It's good for us, friends. Every time we gather before the table, it's good for us. The Holy Spirit uses that as the moment for inward reflection to test our commitment to Jesus. And to either stir that commitment to a greater strength or allow us a moment to repent so that once again we can get back on the path toward the land of promise that awaits. Finally, the supper provides a moment for us to remember our unified confession. Our unified confession. Is there a greater display of our unity as a church than when we collectively partake of the supper together. There are many moments where we get to express our oneness as a people, our oneness in Christ, but I can think of no greater expression of our unity and commitment in Jesus than the partaking of the Lord's Supper. In this moment, we will be collectively testifying to our common commitment our common confession, and our mutual submission to Christ. There's no greater privilege of church membership than what we are about to do. There's no greater reminder that we are not just saved for ourselves, but saved to be a part of a people. 
then when we sit down and remember as a people the sacrifice of God, not just on my behalf, but on our behalf. This supper transcends natural barriers. There's no kid table here. There's no Gentile or Jew table here. There's no Republican or Democrat table here. There's no traditional worship or contemporary worship table here. There's no English table and Spanish table here. There's no American table and Kenyan table here. There's one table. And whatever it is that would naturally divide us has been broken down in the gospel and we sit level before the elements before us. This is a reminder that we are one. And that when the enemy begins to try to infuse things that divide us into our church, we will resist because we have a greater commitment than just my preference or just my expectation. My commitment is to the gospel. And I'm willing to put my preferences and what would normally divide me aside out of devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a powerful moment this is for us as a church. Remembering the redemptive activity of God and allowing Him to knit us together in greater ways as a people. So with those commitments in mind, let's turn our attention to the supper itself. And I just want to give you a time of inward reflection. So wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord. Would you ask Him to make sure that you are partaking of this supper, if you are partaking of it, in a manner that is worthy of Him? And just as a reminder, this is a supper only for those who are in Christ. So if you are not in Christ, if, you, if you've not given your life to Jesus, if you've not responded to the gospel in repentance and belief, then we would ask you to abstain from this. Just pass the plate along. Because you can't give testimony to something that you've never accepted. But we would ask you to watch as all these people around you declare the saving and satisfying work of Jesus. And we would ask you to consider who is it that saves you from your sin and the deepest longings of your heart who can actually satisfy that the only answer is Jesus and we'll give you an opportunity to respond after we partake of the supper for those of us who are in Christ the question becomes are we going to partake of it in a worthy manner today or is there unconfessed confessed sin in your life that would cause you to testify falsely about Jesus and partaking We'd ask you to repent of that even now. And if you can't repent of it in good conscience, if the Lord needs to do some work in your heart even more, then you can abstain today as well. I want us to have a moment of even corporate confession now that we've had a moment of individual confession. I think it's good for us as a people collectively to communicate to God our need for Him and repentance, ongoing repentance, 
for how we have failed to live up to our expectation, knowing that his grace sustains us, but needing to confess it nonetheless. And so would you turn your attention to the screens? And I want us to pray this prayer out loud together as a common confession. Let's say this as a church. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. After the confession, let me also encourage you with some promises that you can cling to and rejoice in as we partake of the supper. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Think today of the sacrifice of Jesus and the blessing of eternal life that is yours. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, God died for us. Would you rejoice in the love of God today as we consider the body and the blood of Christ? In 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. Even if you've messed up, when you repent and come to Jesus, there is mercy and grace upon grace. It's amazing. Praise the Lord. With that confession and that encouragement in mind, I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. Prepare the table. The first element that we'll partake of today is the bread. So let us remember the body of Christ. Let us remember that it was beaten, broken, and destroyed for our sake. Jesus took our punishment. He took our place so that we could be free from the penalty of sin. He has saved us and He continues to sustain us. He is the bread of life who satisfies the deep hunger of our souls. May we partake of this bread in reverence, giving thanks to God for the sacrifice of the Son and the provision to us from the Father. May we further give thanks to the Spirit who has enabled us to know this truth of how God has worked on our behalf. Deacons.